0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This year is the 10th anniversary of the podcast. 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Ron Burridge about his career and about how to
1: design fearlessly. When you're building relationships with clients, I think you open up more when the relationship is there. Here's Debbie Milman.
0: Ron Burridge has two distinct professional identities. In the world of business, he is known as the head of global design for the Hershey Company. And previously, he led design teams at Disney and the design efforts for many Procter & Gamble brands like Old Spice, Gillette, and Head & Shoulders. But Ron Burridge is also an actor and singer. One wonders if these two identities complement or compete with each other. He joins me now to talk about his design career and about his performing career and how he holds it all together. Ron, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I'm glad you are here. (laughs) When I first started my research on you and discovered that you are an actor as well as a designer, I got very excited when I saw you were born in Hollywood. But as I dug deeper, I realized it was Hollywood Florida, not Hollywood California. What was it like growing up in Florida?
1: Oh, it was amazing. Um,
0: A little different from California? A little different
1: from California, but I think, you know, destiny, the names, it all kind of works in.
0: Um, You attended Broward Community College and got an associate's degree in advertising. Correct. And then graduated from Rollins College with a bachelor's degree in communications and writing. So how on earth did you get into acting and design? I know. It's,
1: um, you know, throughout high school and grade school, I just love to perform. And I found art in a really weird way. I had really encouraging teachers growing up. I remember in third grade, my math teacher gave me a set of calligraphy pens just because she thought I had beautiful penmanship. And just encouragement along the way kind of brought me into design in a very obscure way. It was always something that was part of my life, but just not officially and performing in third grade, I well, actually, second grade, I played Beulah the Big Beast in a production. A production um, of what? Of, I have no idea. <laughs> Beulah the Big Beast. Uh, Beulah <laughs> the Big Beast. But uh, from that point on, I just always uh, well, actually, in kindergarten, I played Annie in Annie. Um, in my kindergarten production. Really? I'm assuming
0: that you didn't have the beard and mustache you currently have. Exactly. So you were in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. So it was a very gender fluid environment.
1: It was. I was the only one who could memorize the words to tomorrow. That's (laughs) that's the only reason I got cast. And because my great grandmother had a great wig uh, for me to wear. Oh, I was going to say, did you
0: play the part as Annie a girl or Annie a boy?
1: Annie full girl in uh, the red dress, white sash and uh, curly wig. It was
0: great. Wow. And a stuffed dog. I so want to ask you if you want to do a bar or two from no. tomorrow. No. <laughs> Darn. The sun will come out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So why acting and design as opposed to one or the other?
1: Um, I think I had this irrational, neither will work out. And so there might have been a fallback on either side. So if acting didn't pan out, design would. If design didn't pan out, maybe acting would. And I've been really fortunate that I've had an opportunity to do both, kind of professionally. You know, always leaning more on the design side, but um, I still try to perform whenever I can.
0: When did you realize that you had an actual talent for design? What made you decide to pick design as one of the career paths? Obviously, acting you've been doing since kindergarten, but what about the design aspect?
1: Throughout school, art was really my strong point. So I, I was never really the math scholar, and, and science was kind of like, oh, I've got to do it because it's, it's part of the world. But I just always gravitated towards art. I had some excellent teachers throughout school that just really fostered it. And when I went for my associate's uh, degree, I kind of fell into advertising. It wasn't really something that I knew existed as a career. And I go back and think, you know, what I learned during my associate's degree, I don't really know how it kind of fits into the bigger world of branding today. But it just was always a passion of mine. I used to play advertising agency when I was a kid. Really? Um, I used to play school uh, with my brother.
0: He was my only student, but I loved playing (laughs) school. What does it say about us now? I know. I know, right?
1: (laughs) Uh, My Aunt Gloria and I used to sit and just draw and play advertising agency. She'd be calling as the client, give me a job. I would do something for her, give it to her.
0: Awesome. <laughs> Just worked Do out. you have any of that work? I don't. Anywhere?
1: I don't. I have the cover of my kindergarten report card that we had to design to then bring home to our family. I have that.
0: Wonderful. Your first job out of college was as the design and production manager at Darden Restaurants. How did you get that first job?
1: I actually um, I start my resume with Darden, but there was uh, there were some before. (gasps) (laughs)
0: There are those skeletons you asked me about, huh?
1: My uh, my actual first job uh, was at American Savings and Loan. Um, It was a bank in Florida, which had since been acquired by like five different banks at this point. But I started actually as a teller. And there was an an opening in the advertising department. I applied for it and I got in as a production artist. And I was, um, I will never forget my first boss of design, Uh, really, is the reason I'm here today. She gave me this great chance. I was doing payroll stuffers and bank stuffers and brochures and all kinds of signage for banks. And then when that was sold, one of the agencies we had worked with really took a liking to me and offered me my first job at a design agency, and that was in South Florida, a company called Alonso & Company. They're still around, do very well that's kind of what led me to Darden.
0: Ah, Darden, So I love when people have the stories about what they really did before they did what they did.
1: The Darden piece was really just, I wanted to be close to Disney. My dream was to work for the Disney company. It's all I ever wanted to do. Why? I was infatuated with Disney, everything Disney. So I, I go back and ask, when did you realize you want to be a designer? I was obsessed with everything Disney. Like Animation, audio animatronics. I was fascinated by how Disney did everything that they did. And growing up in Florida, for me, a vacation was Disney. That was it. So, I, is it still? I, it is. It is. <laughs> we just went on a Disney cruise with my niece and her family, which was amazing. Yeah, Disney was the only vacation I ever knew. So, like, it was we're going on vacation. It just meant you were going to Disney. And so, living in South Florida, and then of course finishing school, I thought, well, you know, I want to get closer to Disney. And I made it to Darden, which was an awesome, awesome place, and got me exactly where I wanted to be.
0: Did you have to design Flair? Flair.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we did the buttons, um, the <laughs> Hospitaliano buttons, you and did. You everybody did. had to. We, we allowed at the time the servers were decorating their own buttons to make them theirs, but uh, they were special. They were I great.
0: love, I love the idea that we can personalize our own way of living and being in a uniform. It's fantastic. So you then went to the agency side and worked as a graphic designer at the Ormento Design Group. And you did that for five years. What was it like to suddenly be on the agency side?
1: You know, it was kind of a a good flow. So when I was at the bank, it was a bit of, you know, the client side. Um, taking people's or, money. Taking people's money. When I went to the agency, then the taking flip. Taking people's Take money. <laughs> <laughs> and and then going back um, again, Ormento actually was my first manager at the bank, um, and she opened her own agency. Oh, and, so you never um, burn bridges. I ne- exactly. Ever, ever, ever. And again, she just gave me all these amazing opportunities and experiences. But I actually loved being on the agency side of things. I felt that you have a great opportunity to solve problems, and you get a massive breadth of work. So you're not stuck in one kind of style or genre for a long time. You get to – new client comes in, new kind of work, and it keeps you fresh.
0: How did the experience, if at all, influence how you interact with design firms since you've been on the client side ever since?
1: I think it's pretty massive. I had some really horrible clients throughout my career – And I think everybody does, right? Um, I hope I didn't give anything away. Um, (laughs) But I think there's a a humane side of being a client that's often forgotten. I I think sometimes agency partners are considered a a vendor versus a partner. And, of course, there is an exchange of dollars. And, yes, you're getting what you pay for. But I firmly believe that you get more than you pay for when you have great relationships uh, with the people you're working with every day. And so I think going through periods where – I didn't know how to reply or respond to some of the client requests, just make it a little more human being on the, on the client side now.
0: I want to talk a little bit more about the client agency relationship in a bit, but I still want to talk a little bit more about your background and your history because the next stop is a big one. In nineteen ninety seven. 1997, 1997, you become a senior graphic designer. At the Walt Disney Company. I did. I and, did. And there you ended up leading teams of artists and illustrators at Walt Disney World. You were creating products for Disneyland Park. This was your dream job your whole life leads up to this moment. It's 1997. How do you hear about the job? How do you go about making sure that you get that job? And then what did you do when you were there? Because you are there for quite a long time. I
1: was. I love, love, love Disney. I'm obsessed with Disney. I still am. And I probably sent more resumes, cover letters, samples of work to Disney than any human possibly could. So you really Um, pursued them? I pursued them. Like a suitor. Yes. And I got letter after letter thanking me for my interest in the magic of the Walt Disney Company. (laughs)
0: I hope Um, you still have the mall. You
1: know, I wish I did, Debbie. I don't. But what's crazy, and another Twilight part of my life, I love Disney so much that I worked part-time at the Disney store in the mall while I was working at the agency and while I was working at Darden restaurants because I just wanted to be there so badly. And I had this feeling like, well, I'm already in the company. They're just going to transfer me in and (laughs) I'll start designing tomorrow.
0: (laughs) That's so awesome. Um,
1: And uh, it didn't quite work out that way. But I was working for Darden, and so there was a little chronological shift there in in the beginning. So I was working for Darden, and one of my managers at Darden left. I was on press one evening for Darden. I was doing some awesome menus for the Olive Garden. And two presses down, somebody who worked at the Disney Design Group was printing for Disney. I'm like, oh my god, I've applied a million times. I never hear from you. And I got a card. And then connections oh, kind of happened. Yeah. And I think it was right place, right time. It was like a 3 AM press check.
0: Yeah, that, um, was, that was the right place, right time. There's no, there's no effort or ardor in, involved in that at all.
1: It was serendipitous. And so I was actually hired for Disney's California Adventure, their big push was to really at the time, make it a different experience than what you would get at Disneyland, right? I mean, they were right across the street. You didn't have all the miles and acreage that you have in Florida. And so everything we were doing was new. They hadn't even really done any construction. So we were designing uh, blueprints of rides. We were getting to walk through these massive models just with our heads to experience kind of what the attractions would be and design merchandise and theme park experiences around it. It was just incredible. And I remember going to the opening day of California Adventure and being like all weepy. Um, (laughs) I'm Finally here. Um, and, uh, and then I started working on, on Disneyland Park, which for me, the, the California parks are always my favorite. So, so
0: what, what was your task in, in doing that project or in, in that aspect of the job? What were you charged with doing?
1: For California Adventure, there were about five design leaders on the project. I was one of them. I was tasked with Hollywood, which oh, was so Oh, look perfect. at that. It goes full circle back to Hollywood, <laughs> Florida. Um, so there was a, uh, an area all themed around movies, and um, I, I got to do all of the merchandise and product for Superstar Limo, and there was a show called Step in Time. None of this is there anymore, by the way. They've redone the park. I was doing everything. We At Disney, we did all the work in-house. So we were writing our copy. We were doing our illustrations. We were doing our own production. We were sending everything off to get manufactured, signing off on samples, and then actually seeing it set in store. It was pretty amazing.
0: What's the biggest thing you learned from your time at Disney?
1: You know, I think the biggest thing I learned at Disney was there's something magical about working on a brand and an experience that just transforms kind of an experience. And so our office was actually located at MGM Studios at the time. It's also since been renamed. And at lunch, we were able to walk out into the parks. And we could go and see our merchandise. We can see how things were doing. We could interact with the guests. But one of the things that you had to do as a salaried employee at Disney was actually work in the park. And there was just something really magical about seeing the guests interact either with product or with the experiences and the attractions that just made you think differently when you went in every day to say, "Okay, I'm going to do a new snow globe or a new plush today. You you were able to kind of think about, well, how is that going to? change somebody's day when they wind this up and they hear the music or something magical happens with it it just gave you a different experience and it it makes me think about you know and i always say at disney we were really lucky because we had a captive audience right so it's it's very different selling hershey's chocolate in the mass environment than it it was actually selling on disney property but it's still the same kind of mindset in terms of the way you think about the full interaction and the and the cycle that the design plays
0: what made you decide to leave
1: I was young in my career and I really wanted to get to a point where I was doing more design management and really leading more brand strategy and and thinking about bigger, broader impact on the market. And there was a lot of buzz at the time with Procter and Gamble and what they were doing with design. It just really excited me, and I jumped ship.
0: So they recruited you.
1: So I actually applied to Procter and Gamble. Um, Oh, did you take that
0: online test? Did
1: I did several. Actually, I took it twice because you know I left. You left and went to
0: Cranium, and then came back. So tell us about this test. It's myth. Thick. You go in, you take the test, it's all online, and then you are either a Procter & Gamble type employee or you're not.
1: I have no idea what this test is about, and I'm still amazed that I passed it twice. It's kind of a mythical thing. I mean, you do actually take it, you finish the test, and then hopefully you're your recruiter tells you, you know, you got the job or not. I remember maybe the first time I took it it seemed a little more math focused than than I would have liked. Oh, really? Um yeah, there's there's definitely like quantitative, qualitative kind of reasoning and and personality kind of factoring in. I actually had several friends that I recruited to P&G who didn't make it through. Yeah. I always scratch my head because I'm like, well, I know this person, I've worked with them, they'd be amazing here. But, hey,
0: So you left Disney to move to Cincinnati, Mm -hmm. and that began your first of two stints at Procter & Gamble. Correct. At the time, you were working on brands like Old Spice and Secret and Olay, but you only stayed a year. Tell us why.
1: So my first stint at P&G, forget the test, the interview process was grueling. They were doing this thing called a design fair. So they were really trying to build the design organization, and you would actually stay in a room all day, and your interviewer would come in, meet with you for an hour. You'd go through your portfolio. They'd leave. Another one would come in. You'd do this over. And I did this for like two solid days at PNG. and you were going to say two um, solid hours. No, it was days. It was days. <laughs> um, and actually, they were on separate occasions. So the first time I came in, they were consider and I have this – crazy affinity to Olay, the brand. I, I remember it like sitting on my grandmother's counter and, and you just were not allowed to touch it. And I was being interviewed for a job. My first job at P&G was in beauty. And I was so excited to think about working on Olay. And then they interviewed me for baby and then they interviewed me for home care. And then it kind of went silent. Then they offered me the job in home care. So my first stint at P&G was working on Dawn, Ivory, Cascade, Joy. I did the redesign of Joy. It didn't do well, but it was beautiful. Um,
0: <laughs> why, did, why do you think that it didn't do well, even though it was beautiful? Um you know, that's consumers that's the real question of our business, isn't it? <laughs> I think
1: we um, consumers actually love the Joy brand, and we were really trying to to freshen it up. There was a huge trend in in kitchen scents and fresh citrus, and and Joy was really just about you know great cleaning lemon. We tried to make it more of like a Bath and Body Works experience, and I think we were ahead of our time. I think it would do really well.
0: So you <laughs> left. You left P and G the first time. I did to become the first ever creative director of Cranium, which at the time was the fastest growing independent toy and game company in the United States, mm-hmm. maybe the world. Yeah. And Cranium is described as the game for your whole brain. For any listeners that might not understand what Cranium is, can you describe it?
1: So I, I left P&G to go to Cranium mostly because I, I missed the hands-on side of Disney. And so I thought really going in full to Proctor as a design manager, I'd be great with that. But I I didn't want to stop sketching and producing. And so this opportunity at Cranium came up, and it was kind of like the best of all worlds there was a relationship with Gary Baseman, who yes. is just incredible and was one of my heroes, actually, while I worked at Disney. And, in fact, when I went out to Cranium uh, for my interview, I had an interview with Gary wow. um, as part of the process, and I'm glad I passed his test, whatever well, that and was. he
0: created the animated series, Teacher's Pet. He did the art, just for, so our listeners have some context in case they don't know who he
1: is. Absolutely. And he did the original creative for Cranium. All right. of the He created the characters. But Cranium is this amazing game where it's Its whole body. So it's language, it's math, it's science, it's creativity, and art it really is about bringing kind of the best of everyone together. And, and the whole point behind Cranium was everyone shines. So if you if you think of other games like um, trivia games, there might be one person who's always kind of like ahead or the smartest. Or if you think of games that were all focused on music, somebody knows more about the 80s than, than the rest of the people. And what Cranium really let you do, in, in the experience, everybody had a, a chance to participate. And it was really amazing. And, and the, the Cranium story is, is for another day, and there are better people to tell it than me. But Their story in terms of how they became successful was just incredible. And so there was this amazing draw for me. And uh, I will say leaving Hollywood, Florida, going to Cincinnati, or, or I should say Orlando, and leaving the sunshine and the water really made Seattle attractive to me. And this opportunity to really be on the ground floor of what Cranium was doing was incredible. I had a great, great time and experience there. We brought Cranium into publishing and into games and into toys. And we went from you know a small portfolio into an entertainment kind of enterprise, so much so that uh, it was acquired. I know. Um, 77 and-, and a half <laughs> <laughs> million dollars
0: was what Hasbro paid for that brand. And, uh, well done. <laughs>
1: yes. No, it was It was great for Cranium. And for me, it brought me back to the magic of Procter & Gamble.
0: So they lured you back. How, how did you end up coming back?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, we knew that the sale was happening at Cranium and, and things were kind of shifting and changing there. And I actually loved my time at Procter & Gamble. I, I will say, in hindsight, the thing that I, I loved most was this Consumer experience that I never really had in my career, and spending so much time listening to consumers and and just days and days behind the glass, listening to focus groups and, and hearing how you talk to consumers about design, it was just incredible for me, and it was without a doubt one of like the educational highlights of my career and I really loved the people I worked with at Procter and Gamble, and so leaving was really, really hard, but it was an easy decision to go back. I actually had sent. A note to my former manager at P&G, and I said, "Hey, things are are shifting at Cranium. I'd love to talk to you about coming back." And I was in town. My my partner's family lives in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, I was in town for the holidays. And she said, "Hey, come in and talk to us. It, you know, no pressure. We'll see what happens." And uh, the rest is history. And I went back to Beauty Care, which was a thrill for me.
0: So you worked at P&G when Claudia Kachka and A.G. Lafley tried to change. The public perception of brands and design, as well as create a more design-centric culture at this behemoth of, of, of an organization. What was it like working with them at that time? You were right in the center of it.
1: Again, it was one of the most educational kind of as-it-goes type of environment. We were trying new things. We were engaging in new and exciting ways. We were creating new tools to help people understand what design was. And we were doing a lot of selling of of design. And what was amazing is you had Claudia and AG helping that task and saying, this is critical, this is important, this is something that can transform the company. And when enough people hear that, you have more opportunities to do it. So I think a lot of organizations talk about how important design is, and it is absolutely very important but sometimes they talk it and they don't demonstrate it and i think what what claudia nag did brilliantly was they demonstrated the the magic of what it could be And we had some great wins. And so it, it was one of those things where you would see the success. And, and as a design leader, I would see my colleagues' success, other design managers doing amazing things. And it was like, well, what are they doing differently than, you know, than what I'm doing? And, and what am I doing that, you know, we can share? And then the brand partners and, and the brand managers and, and the marketing directors would also rally behind. Wow. Look at the success that's happening over there. What's different? Wow. Design. It was this great experimental time. We tried a lot of things. A lot of things stuck and still are in the system. Some things kind of transformed over time and and changed. But it really was revolutionary. And, you know, I truly go back to... One of the best experiences of my of my life. I, I love I I love PNG as well. <laughs>
0: so you worked on finally at long last you get the opportunity to work on the global redesign of Olay. I did. Um, at the time you initiated the redesign, the Olay logo had only been changed twice in the previous fifty years years. What was that experience like? How do you go about starting a project on the redesign of a logo that has not been changed more than twice in 50 years?
1: So I, I think a big part of Olay's challenge was the perception that, you know, the same way I think of it and revere it as, oh my God, it sat on my grandmother's counter. The pink bottle. The pink bottle. There were a lot of of consumers who who still thought it was their grandmother's or their mother's brand. And it is one of the best products in the world, I, I believe, only because, not only because I worked on it. And there was this this shift to, to take that mindset away from consumers. And so the oil of dropped and it, it just became Olay. And consumers, depending on who you talk to, some still say oil of Olay. But over time, I think it helped change the perception of the brand and bring the brand into, into new spaces. It was a nice signal of this is revolutionary and, and a change that's happening.
0: And that revolutionary change went off very smoothly. I want to talk a little bit about some of the um, more volatile changes that we've been seeing over the last couple of years. But back when you first redesigned the Olay brand, including the logo, it was really well received in in the market. I um, in an article about the redesign on Armin site Brand New, you stated, "To move forward, the team had to first step back. We analyzed beauty, fashion, and other inspirational brands to understand how identities have evolved. You have to strike the right balance. Celebrate historical assets which possess wonderful memories and authenticity, but still lean into the future to be progressive and relevant." And I loved that statement. But that's really hard to do. And and nowadays it seems like consumers and and audiences everywhere are much less willing to accept any change. How how do you manage to do that type of revolutionary step change without uh, a public outcry?
1: So from an Olay point of view, there was always this back and forth of we've got, you know, so much on the pack. We're telling all of these stories about, you know, benefit and, and benefit visualization. And there were these conversations related to what stays and what goes – and specifically around the Madonna, the icon that's on the package, there were a lot of questions related to the role and what is the role it's playing. And, and what was really beautiful about that icon is when you, when you actually talk to women about it, they would actually, like, caress their face. And, you know, the same way that in that icon, the Madonna is what we called her, was caressing her face. So we, we felt that she had to be a part of it. And then we looked and and explored different ways to keep her in, right? Is she a a mark of authenticity? Does it actually live on the back of the product, on the top of the product? Is she a seal to... You know, to symbolize the the credibility of the brand. And we actually kept her front and center. And the transformation was very minimal. We did a soft change to what was there. And I do remember when, when we posted that on Under Consideration, um, it was met with some mixed emotions. But with consumers, it, it was really well-received, and, and it's still in market today. But I think as designers, we have this responsibility of especially designers of iconic brands what's at the heart of the brand and what's at the heart of the consumer and where do you want the brand to go and how do, you, how do you bridge the gap between the two? And two radicals, probably not right and probably not respectful to the brand, but you also have to think if all of the change and the process to to do change is, is really worth it when, when you're doing something that is not even recognizable or noticeable. So I think there's a, a bridge there. And a big part of that is doing your homework, right, as a designer. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in the PNG archives going through old print, old advertising, old packaging to really understand the role of the icon, the role of the branding and, and the letter forms to really kind of see how the brand has evolved over time and, and where we could take it. And doing your homework, I think, makes you feel more confident in the choices that you're making. But it's a bit of a critical world today. And, um, you know, when I was doing the the Olay logo, I think Under Consideration had only been on for a little while in terms of, you know, it's, uh, it was kind of the first time I'd put anything out there. And, and you have that kind of gasp response when when you see the first review come in. So it uh, is it is a different world. Um, and I think it it means that we as designers have to really know our stuff and and do our homework so we could be uber confident in the choices that we're making.
0: In 2013, you got the sweetest job on earth. You became the head of global design at the Hershey Company, where you are not only leading the design function, you are also building it from the ground up. Let's talk for a minute or two about the big brouhaha that occurred on your first big public project, the redesign of the Hershey logo. What happened?
1: Well, I had received the job from Hershey, and I was actually living in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, I was working on Pantene for Procter & Gamble. And my then manager, or my soon-to-be manager at Hershey called and said, hey, we're we're going through the process of redesigning the brand. We thought you'd probably want to be involved. <laughs> so, uh, so from Geneva, I started getting involved in the briefing and all of that. And once my relocation happened, we had a swift time to get to market with the redesign. You know, this was one of those things where – I was so uber confident in the work that we had produced. Same thing. I spent days in the Hershey's archives just learning the Milton Hershey story and and what he's about and and how he's, you know, really transformed – an industry, one of the things that transformed the industry was the Hershey's Kiss. Of course. And um, and so as we were thinking about, you know, what is the branding for, for the Hershey Company? If, if you arrive in Hershey, Pennsylvania and drive down Cocoa and Chocolate Avenue, you, you see these giant Hershey Kisses street lamps everywhere. And so all of the exercises around, well, what's the logo? Just, why are we doing this? It, it's so right under our nose. And of, of course, the process to, to make it happen between, you know, everything from CM CMO approval to board of director approval to chairman of the board approval, we were super excited about about the work. And so anyway, I was in um, Las Vegas for the opening of Hershey's Chocolate World. We um, had put a new flagship store there. And I knew that under consideration was going to be running the redesign. Um, And it was actually kind of a pseudo vacation day for me. I was there for the grand opening, but then I was also taking a couple days off. And I don't know what it was. Time zone change. I'm like, I woke up early in the morning. I'm like, oh, I think that's supposed to run today. And wow, the first bit of news that I got on the redesign wasn't great. And it was something that I thought, well, this will pass. About an hour or two in the day, my, my PR person from Hershey called and said, hey, not sure if you've seen this. <laughs> um, yes, I've seen it. And it's just amazing how it took off and just kind of the, the tumbleweed effect of, of the comments. And so it, it, it was a learning experience certainly for me. I think I said, oh, crap, like "Oh, I can't say that anymore um, a <laughs> uh, uh, hundred times that day. But it, it was one of those things where, you know, for me, the, the most important thing was my chief marketing officer, the CEO of the company, really stood behind the work. And, and I think it, it showed a, a huge sign from the Hershey Company that we believed in what we were doing and we had done our homework. And, and out of context, I mean, what's unfortunate is the comment came in was on an element of what is a giant visual identity system that's really transformed our, our town, our plants, our, our corporate office. Is. And so it, it, it is. It's a, it's amazing at uh, at what a, a little news can do. Um, it
0: was very encouraging and surprising that the Hershey Company stood behind the work so vigilantly. And we've seen this happen quite a lot, whether it be Tropicana, whether it be the Gap, whether it be that college in California where changes are very swiftly reversed because of the public outcry. In talking with Paula Cher about this over the years, she's mentioned how sad that is for designers because most change is seen with apprehension because that's just human nature. But once we start responding so quickly to that apprehension, we run the risk of being held back and not being able to make important changes in the world, because we're so afraid of being bullied. And Isaac Mizrahi and I were talking about that as well, where he was talking about how the clothes on the the red carpet have changed and you don't see as much experimental work because people are so nervous about being called out as failing. And we're seeing that, of course, now, right this very second, with the response to Hillary Clinton's logo, which I find so disheartening. It's actually, I think, a really good logo. But whether or not it's a good logo or a bad logo is almost not the point. It's about whether or not we're able to see something in a different way than we have before. Why do you think that's so difficult for us, Ron?
1: Well, I think there's a sense that, well, everyone has an opinion, right? And and we have real time access to it now. I, I think there's just a, a general kind of trigger happy response to, I see it, I don't like it, and I go. And also a general sense of, it's different. You know, If I use Hershey as an example, the logo change, if you look at the before to the after, it was a wrapped kiss, it was an unwrapped kiss. Ultimately, the same parts and pieces stayed in, and there was still a resistance to change. I think with you know, the, the current situation, I would say that the Hillary logo doesn't look much like anything we've seen in the campaign space. And so so, okay, it's different, and so people maybe are reacting to it that way. And then there's just a general sense of the brands I know, the brands I love. What did you do with it? How did you take it away? You know, what as I did my research um, after the fact, uh, you know, there's a, a reality of, you know, those brands kind of were either falling out of grace with consumers. These companies were looking for new ways in or new consumers. But at the same time, they were being held back maybe by just – Tradition. And so I think really being able to slice and dice the two is critical. But I don't know. I think we should be nicer to each other.
0: I agree. (laughs) Um, I know at the time you were really afraid you were going to lose your job. I did. (laughs) I mean, you had just started. This was your first big, big hurrah. There, it was. And and then this all happens. How did you recover emotionally?
1: Oh my gosh. Well, I I was in Vegas, so that was uh, a good part of it. I have to say, everyone at Hershey was so supportive. I had an amazing PR team who really helped, kind of just make sure that everything stayed under control. My husband was uber supportive. Of, of everything that was going on, but it was something that, you know, you just don't shake out of out of your brain. And I had just brought in a new agency partner to do this work with me, and so I was so proud of them and what they were able to deliver. And so part of me was I was more concerned for them than I was for me. I, I had just rallied an entire organization around this change, and I had just presented the the redesign at our global marketing conference, and so it was unveiled to the entire company. There was a, a, a little bit of, okay, I'm going to just stay under the radar for a couple of days here. But if you ever get a chance and and you get to come to our, our new corporate headquarters, it is all over the place, proudly displayed. So we're thrilled with it. And it was absolutely the right thing to do at the Hershey Company.
0: Bravo to the Hershey Company for being able to withstand that kind of bullying. Let's talk about your role in design management. You're about to go on stage at the How Conference to talk about how to design fearlessly. In fact, the title of your presentation is Design Fearlessly, Overcome Skeptics, Criticism, and Cynicism to Deliver the Ultimate Brand Experience. So my question is, what are the top three attributes you would recommend or advise a designer to embody to be able to do the, the most effective, fearless work?
1: First, I, I think you have to have amazing relationships. And when you're building relationships with clients, and, and whether that's an internal client for me at Hershey or that's a client from an agency side, I think you open up more when the relationship is there. And I think it's going to allow you to explore, you to be more creative and, and take more risks in the way that you actually would present work or, or the work that you would actually present Um, So I I think that's first and foremost, the trust trust that you're building. The other thing is to experiment. I I think when, um, when I was in Geneva and I started sketching the Hershey logos, none of them looked like what we shipped. And I had a very clear picture in my head of what this redesign was going to look like. And trusting in the process and knowing that, OK, maybe my first idea wasn't the best idea and I have to work through this and you really need to explore and and keep going and iterating is something where I think you you often can say, oh, was my first idea wrong? Is the new idea right? And so there's a, an element that you kind of have to barter with yourself in, in terms of, OK, where am I sitting and, and what is the right direction? And then I, I think finally confidence. You really have to believe in the work. And if if you're feeling um, – I was actually just reading an article um, about, well, the client made me do it or something like that. <laughs> I, I think if you really feel that way about any work, you're, you're not designing fearlessly. And so there are always going to be compromises in work for sure, things that maybe you would have done differently or you would have liked to have seen come to life differently. But you have to be confident in the work. And one of the reasons why you know, the Hershey piece was kind of easy – easier to swallow was because I I absolutely knew it was the right thing to do. So I think those are them, trust, relationships, confidence, and uh, doing your homework.
0: Let's talk a little bit about your acting career. Oh, gosh.
1: You knew it was coming.
0: (laughs) So on your Mm website— Which I haven't
1: updated forever.
0: Well, so then we're working off the information Uh, I was able to (laughs) glean from an old website.
1: (laughs) I still pay for the domain name.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're known for your powerful vocals, Mm. your comedic timing, and ability to bring characters to life in new and inventive ways. You also list on your website your acting abilities, and you describe your voice character as warm and enthusiastic. And you list a number of accents that you are able to do <laughs> British, Jewish mother, <laughs> and New York. You know, it's coming now. I do.
1: <laughs> a mix of all.
0: So I want you to say something, anything you want, utilizing the different accents. Ronald, get in here and pick up your stuff. This
1: place is a mess.
0: That's actually more Florida. Oh, that was good. Okay, New York.
1: Oh, God, it's been too long. I don't know. (laughs) I can't do that one. Ronald. Ronald. It's more nasally. (laughs) It's a little Fran (laughs) Drescher. I guess
0: maybe that's also Florida. I don't know. (laughs) It's a combination of Jewish mother Florida and New York. All in one. All in one. (laughs) So, Ron, my last question today is about a current role that you have. Uh, I understand that you were just offered and accepted – the role of Chef Louis in Gretna Theater's production of The Little Mermaid. Oh, my gosh. Is it Chef Louis or Chef Lewis? I don't
1: know yet. We oh. haven't started. We haven't started. I haven't done all the character work on it. I'm going to say Chef Louis.
0: Okay. So, I, And I love the fact that it's The Little Mermaid I know, of all things. I know. For, full so, circle. So full <laughs> circle. So when is that and where can people see you perform?
1: Okay. That is July 9th to the 19th at um, the Gretna Theatre. It's in Mount Gretna, Pennsylvania, which happens to be walking – distance to my house which is amazing oh, it um, and it's a it's a an amazing um professional summer theater and they do a, a great season in in rep and i'm super excited to to do it i haven't been on stage for a few years
0: oh i can't wait to see you in it thank can't you. wait thank you so much for being on the show today Ron. thank you thank you to find out more about ron Burridge, follow him on twitter at ron Burridge, r-o-n-b-u-r-r-a-g-e This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters
1: in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Rainy Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.